Have you ever stopped or spent some time thinking and asking yourself the question, what is the church? What is the church? What is the church really all about? These last two years, uh, with everything we've experienced in our world, the pandemic lockdowns, the, the decisions that churches made when they were told to, to close for an ex, uh, extended period of time, all of those things truly, I think, exposed uh, a startling reality. There's a lot of people who profess to be Christians who have very little understanding of what the church really is all about. And more importantly, really understanding what authority does the church really have? You know, the state mandated that churches you know, couldn't worship. They had to close down uh, their worship gatherings uh, for two weeks, then in some places, two years, right? It was, it was a long period of time. And an overwhelmingly large majority of professing Christians didn't even stop to think for a moment, hmm, Does the state actually have authority to tell the church of Jesus Christ what it can or cannot do? Now, this message isn't about the pandemic. This message isn't about mask mandates or any of those things, but strictly concerning the authority of the church and the authority of other human institutions and and, and us understanding what those things are. To be clear, God has ordained in our world, here on earth, three primary Uh, human institutions, the family, the state, government, and the church of Jesus Christ. And each one of those has its own measure of authority, a sphere, an arena of rule. They overlap in some cases, but to each, God has granted a certain measure uh, of authority. And we are instructed in, in Scripture to submit, right, to our governing authorities, But is that a blanket statement of unconditional submission in all things? No, it's it's not. It's not. Especially if there is overreach into other areas that extend beyond the authority of one institution into another. So we saw things like that happening. And again, this isn't about the power of the state and whether or not it has authority over the church and whether it can tell the church what it can or cannot do or any of those things. But understanding the unique authority that the that the Lord has given to to his church. And it's important for a number of reasons. What you understand and what you believe about the church will shape how you live your Christian life, for better or for worse. Church isn't like anything else in the world. There is no other organization like the church, no other institution like the church of Jesus Christ. If your view of church, your understanding of church, that it's like any other, you know, volunteer membership organization, kind of here like the Y, right? If you, where we meet, if you, if you want to be part of the Y, what do you do? You go pay your dues, right? Your monthly membership, and then you have access to their facilities. You can, all of the privileges that the Y extends to its members uh, is something you can participate on. You can choose to show up if you want to. You can choose not to show up. As long as you keep paying your dues, right, your name remains on the roll, and you can come in and scan your little fob, key fob and, and on your way to do what those things are. And when you get tired of it or you no longer want to be part of it, you just cancel your membership. And if you view church that way, like a volunteer organization that you can opt in or opt out of, I, I really pray that today's message will encourage you to see the church of Jesus Christ in a whole other light. 
Some of you are new to Scent Church, and you're still kind of trying to figure out what kind of church is this, right? What are we all about? And this message is going to help you understand a little bit more about what we believe that the church of Jesus Christ is and how it should function. Specifically, next week, we will get into a lot of those details. Uh, But for those of you who have expressed a desire to be part of Scent Church in a more formal uh, measure through membership, Uh, Today's message especially will have some very important theological assertions that frame what a member of Scent Church is and does. Our main point today that we will tease out looking at the scripture uh, and and gaining our understanding of the church is simply this, that the local church matters because it is God's design for each believer to be submitted to and part of a local community for their spiritual formation. Let's turn our attention to the 16th chapter of Matthew, verses 18 uh, and 19. This is a familiar passage to many of you, but hear the words of the Lord. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These are the words of the Lord. Now, I can tell you over the years, I've had many people question me, where in the Bible does it say I have to join a local church? Where in the scriptures do we find it said, the Lord says, be a member of the local church, right? We see, receive pushback regarding formalizing membership to one degree or another. And listen, some of you come from different denominational distinctives and from other churches. That process could be something elaborate and crazy. Some churches don't have any, you know, so you come from all different backgrounds. But most people want to know, where in the Bible does it say that? Some ask that question truly because they want to avoid committing to a local church. So they'll scour the scriptures to say, well, it doesn't explicitly tell me to do that. Now, right off the bat, I'll tell you, there is no verse like that. If you're looking for a verse, you know, that tells you, kind of like you're scouring it for, is a church like a club that I can opt in or opt out of? No, there's no specific scripture that will say God's people sent in their membership application, you know, to the church at Corinth, right? You're not going to find that passage, right? If you're looking for something like that, there's no verse like that. However, what, what do we find? We find that there is a biblical mandate for being part of a local church. And there is an assumption by every single one of the New Testament writers that all disciples of Jesus were to be part of the life and ministry of a local church. Who were the letters written to? A local church, right? A local body of believers. So while you won't find the process of membership, the steps to membership, like you can go to someone's website, some church's website, here's how to become a member, A, B, C, don't forget to tithe, you know, uh, that's usually at the top of the list, right? Uh, <laughs> you got to give, 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 no, you, might, you have all the different steps, you're not going to find that in the scripture, right? There's no steps to local church membership like that. Well, what will you find is evidence of the existence of the local church uh, with its members, with its leadership and principles in God's words for membership with the local church. Why does that matter? Why does it matter to know 
what a church is and to then become part of that. Again, going back to our main point, but also what I said earlier. Your understanding of what the church is will shape the way you live out your life. It will shape out your spiritual walk with the Lord and how you engage, if at all, with the local gathering, the local community of believers. Now, the New Testament writers used a lot of different metaphors to describe the church, to give us an understanding of the church and its relationship to Jesus Christ. You know, there's numbers that were referred to as the body. The church is referred to as the body of Christ or the family of God, the household of God. We're called the temple of God. We're called living stones that make up uh, the temple of God. We're called the flock. We're referred to a number of different ways. Why is that? Because there's no one single metaphor that can capture the essence of what the church of Jesus Christ truly is. Again, there's nothing else on earth like the church of Jesus Christ. So all of those things are employed to give us a little bit understanding of what that is. But we call it church. Because Jesus uses that word. He's going to build his church. We'll get to that in a moment. So do, let me just answer a couple questions off the front end, just to, to, to just kind of, if you're thinking about them, or you've thought about them, provide some helpful answers, I think. Do you really need to gather with people to be part of the church? Is, is the church just really about God's people gathering? Do I have to gather with people? And I will answer this question by asking you, do you have to gather with your wife? Or your husband? Do you have to be physically present with your children? It's kind of the same kind of question. If God's church is actually a family. We're the family of God or part of God's family. Sometimes that's asked. Why? Because people have been hurt in the church. They've been wounded. If I ask you to raise your hand if you've been hurt by someone in the church, every single hand will fly up. And you'll probably raise the other arm as well. Right? We've all, we've all been wounded. I have got stories that, you know, I would rival some of yours. I'm sure some of you have got some hair-raising, hair-bending stories as well of things that have happened to you in the church. For sure, we know there is a lot of, of abuse that can happen in the church in a number of ways, spiritual abuse and, and other things, horrific things happen uh, because the church is made up of sinners, right? Sinners going to sin. We hurt one another. We wound one another. So I, I understand that part of the hesitation people have about even attending a worship service uh, like this and gathering with, with other believers uh, is, is kind of like PTSD. You know, they, they, there's, there's things that happen to them, and it affects them. I understand that completely, and I'm praying that the Lord would, would bring healing to your life and heart um, th- through that. But... The reality is that Jesus designed this thing to function a certain way. And and he designed it to be a gathering of his people as one of the main components of it. This is why in our Revelation series we talked about, you know, the phrases people say, I love Jesus, but I don't love his church. You know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Uh, and, And, you know, here's the deal. Anytime I sit down with a couple for premarital counseling, you know, they're just in love with one another. They look at each other with those puppy eyes, and they can't wait to spend the rest of their life together. I remind them that you're not just marrying your bride or your future groom. You're marrying to the whole family. Like, you get the whole thing. When you come to Christ, you come to his people. You can't escape that. You get the whole thing, whether you like it or not. Now, some of you are thinking, man, yeah, 
I'm thinking about the family I married into, and <laughs> woo, yeah, that's trauma right there, you know. But you marry into the family of God, right? When you're joined in union with Christ, you get the whole thing. And there are some that are part of God's family that are special. We'll just leave it at that, right? But think about this. Let me give you an example here. Paul, in in bringing correction to the church at Corinth concerning their behavior surrounding the Lord's Supper, he says to them in 1 Corinthians 11, for in the first place, when you come together as a church... When you come together, not if you come together, when you come together. There was a regular repeating pattern of the church assembling, the church gathering, and and doing the the different activities that a church does, and they do them together. They weren't done individually. I mean, that is the definition, right, of the church. Gathering is the very definition of it. The Greek word ekklesia, what does it mean? It means gathering or assembly. You can't escape it. It's in the very definition of the word. Gathering or assembly of a people called for a particular purpose. It's gathering. Jesus could have chosen another word for church. He could have talked about the synagogue. He didn't use the word synagogue for the church. He called it a gathering. He called it an assembly. And he chose that word church to represent his people. And there's some, some phenomenal reasons for that. But the reality is, is that the gathering of the church of Jesus Christ, even in all of the little local expressions of it, all around the world, are a foretaste of the great end-time assembly of the multitudes called out from this world who will constitute the new creation. We looked at that in our series in Revelation. In chapter 7, the vision that John, the apostle of the Lord, is given of the great multitude in heaven. That he sees gathered around the throne of God and of the Lamb. People from where? Every nation, every people group, every tribe, every language represented there. It was a gathering before the throne of God. This little gathering is a microcosm of that greater glory that we're all going to be part of. And that we are part of spiritually right now. Well, okay, I get that. Church is a gathering, but the church is not a building. It's people, right? That's not a trick question. No, it's, it's not a building, right? It's people. And so it's more accurate to say that the church is a people who assemble in a place. Where is that place? Might be in a building. Might not be in a building. Might be in a field. Right? All around the world, people of God are worshiping on the Lord's Day. Not in a building. Okay? They're meeting wherever they need to meet to assemble, to gather in Christ, as one in Christ, united in Christ, to do the things that a church does, right? So the church is a church when they are assembled. I'll answer that question. Well then, all right, I get it. It's people, but I don't have to go then to the church because I am the church. Have you heard that statement? People say, I am the church. I will refer you back to the standard definition of church, ecclesia, assembly. Are you by yourself in assembly? I guess if your pronouns are they and their or whatever that is nowadays, you could say it's plural in assembly in the madness of our world, right? No, right? You can't be. You yourself are not a gathering. You yourself are not in assembly. So you by yourself are not the church. You're part of the church. But you're not the church, right? You're not the church. 
Regular gatherings are what define the early church. Think in, in Acts, right? Everyone talks about, let's go back to Acts. Let's be like the Acts church. What happened after that explosive Pentecost event? Peter's preaching of the word. Thousands, it says, were added to the church. What happened to them after that? Did they all just scatter, go back to their regular lives and existence and watch the apostles, you know, on live stream? What did they do? What did they do? Well, the scripture tells us in Acts 2, right, that they, they devoted themselves to the fellowship. It says that all who believed were together. Acts 2.46, day by day, attending the temple together. They gathered. Isn't it amazing that, that, that right after this, this, this thing happens, so many trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit. And the first thing they do is gather. It's almost as if that's by design. Right? You have to gather. Now, you don't stop being the church when you're not gathered, if you're part of the church, right? Uh, but gathering is essential for the church to function as a church. Think about a sports team. The church isn't a sports team, but let's just use that metaphor for a moment. If I'm a baseball player, a really good one, I actually get to play and not warm the bench like I did in school. Um, but, but let's say I'm a, a sports team, right? Do I stop being part of the team when the team's not playing? No, I'm part of the team. I'm on the roster. I can wear the jersey and all these. I'm still part of the team. But at some point, the team's got to take the field and play together as a team in order for there to be the purpose for which the team is established. So you don't stop being part of the team just because the team isn't playing there. You don't stop being part of the church when the church isn't gathered. But gathering isn't the essential function of why there is a church at all. And that's the point I'm trying to drive home there. And again, Jesus could have designed this a different way. The, the Christian faith could have been something individualistic, but then it would not portray the reality of who we are, the distinct, unique, unique people of God, the family of God. Our Christian faith is organized around the regular gathering of God's people coming together to be shaped into a people for God's glory. It's one of the most damaging things that I think happened over these last couple of years with the way a lot of churches, not all, but a lot of churches uh, responded, you know, uh, in, in making those decisions to not gather, even though they could have gathered. Um, and again, I don't want to get mired down. You know, everyone has different convictions in this area. And while each local church and their elders and their, those who, who lead there have to make decisions for their church, think about the implications of this. this when all, all of these churches pivoted to online only content, right, for, uh, for their, their church to continue blessing their church. We did that for a couple of weeks as well. The challenge was when they called it a suitable alternative for, for the gathering of the church. In fact, many of them just said, it's church. We call it online church. What effect did that have in doing that? Is watching a live stream or a recorded message from your pastor while you're sitting in your PJ sipping on a latte 
the same thing as you sacrificially getting up on a Sunday morning, getting your family ready for church, gathering with the people of God, worshiping the Lord together, hearing the word of God ministered to you, and encouragement and fellowship and prayer and all these things can happen. God, Is it the same thing? No, it's, it's not. Well, logic tells us it's not the same thing. Yet we did this, and is it a wonder that to this day, millions of people who were somewhat regular church-going attending folks in the past aren't at all going to church today. A lot of churches are scratching their head. What happened? What happened? Well, you said that's church. You said that's church. It's not the same thing. I'm glad, that, I'm glad when churches leverage technology to do those things. Well, we post our messages online as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Get the, get the gospel out. Get the content out. Help those who cannot attend church service or those who miss or are out of town. I think that's an amazing thing. That technology is a gift from God, okay? So please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. The problem is when we call that the same thing as what we're doing here today. It's, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing at all. What we believe about church and how we go about being the church really does have a profound effect on how our Christian life is shaped. It's that important. Now, we can't spend a lot of time covering everything about the church. We would be here for months as well. But let's establish some things regarding the church, right? Uh, just to kind of give us some groundwork here. This is an easy one. I'm going to ask you. Who is the head of the church? All right. This is the smartest group of people ever. Jesus is the head of the church, right? He said, I will build my, right? It speaks of possession. He's the builder. He's its architect. It's his church. And he says he'll build it. We know that when he commissioned his, his apostles in the apostolic call in Matthew 28, what did he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority means all authority over every human institution, including the one he's the head of in the church. So he gets to determine what the church is, what the church is supposed to do, how the church is supposed to function, because his reign extends over every human institution. Colossians 1.18 says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Ephesians 4.15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. He is the supreme authority and head over his church. He's the head. The Pope of the Roman Catholic Church, not the head of the church of Jesus Christ. The Patriarch of Constantinople, the Eastern Orthodox Church, not the head of the church of Jesus Christ. The Archbishop of Canterbury of the Anglican Communion, not the head of the church of Jesus Christ. Not your celebrity preacher or teacher, not the pastor who has the largest church in the world. None of those are the head over the church of Jesus Christ. He is the sole head of his church. Right? And as such, we don't get to dictate what the church is supposed to be. You know, I've gone to many church growth conferences over the years. Um, and uh, early on, I was like, well, how, how do you grow a church? How do you grow? You go to these church conferences, and it's amazing how many people stand up there and tell you how to grow churches, never once referencing Jesus as the head of the church. And, oh, let's go into God's word and see what God's word has to say about what a church is supposed to be. 
how a church is supposed to function. It would blow your mind. If you'd go there, you'd expect that, you'd expect that's what they would turn to. Well, you know, hey, Jesus started this thing. Let's go ahead and take a look. Open your Bibles. There's no opening your Bibles. It's pragmatic methodologies of how to get more butts in the pew, more people through the door, you know. No, Jesus is the head of the church. We don't, get to, we don't get to define this. We don't get to design it any old way we want. There's freedoms of expression within, again, the principles that God has established in his word concerning his church. So who's part of this thing called the church? Uh, what I'm going to do is turn to uh, the London Baptist Confession of 1689. I think it's a helpful um, confession that came out of the Reformation era, one that I largely affirm. Uh, but let's look at two paragraphs there concerning the church of Jesus Christ that helps us define some things about who's part of the church. Uh, paragraph 1 of chapter 26 of the confession states this, and it's, uh, it's online uh, in the sermon guide there as well. You'll see it on screen to follow along. It says, the Catholic, that is universal, Church may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and truth of grace. It consists of the full number of the elect who have been, are, and will be gathered into one under Christ, her head. The church is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. First thing I want you to see there is that the church of Jesus Christ is universal and invisible. Now, when we talk about the word universal here, we're talking about the whole church, the whole church of Jesus Christ, comprised of all those who are truly in Christ, united through Christ, through the regeneration of the Spirit, all of His elect from every age who have been saved, are being saved now, will be saved until the Lord returns, are part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. A lot of people get thrown off about that word Catholic. The word Catholic simply means universal. Right? When we confess that, in, like in the Apostles' Creed, the Holy Catholic Church, it's not about the Roman Catholic Church. Don't be like, oh, I'm not Roman Catholic. It's not about that, right? It's the universal church. Sometimes we've, set, we've stated it here in the past, and we will substitute it with the word universal um, so no one has flashbacks, you know? of when I got beat by nuns for being disobedient in school. Right? It's the whole, the whole number of the church of Jesus Christ. It's the full expression of the people of God in all ages. So that's what universal means. We say invisible, and we refer to it as invisible. Visible. Why? Because we don't know who the full number of the elect are. First of all, they're from all ages. So that includes saints from the past. That includes Old Testament saints who looked forward to the promise of the Messiah and trusted in, in God's promises there. It's going to include all those who are going to be saved that are elect when you and I are long gone, right? Not only that, we don't know the internal work of the Spirit of grace and, and, of, and the Spirit in, in the hearts of people, so we can't make that determination. So in that perspective, we use the word invisible. It's not like they're ghosts and we can't. We're looking through them, right? That's what we mean by those particular terms there. Only God knows who belongs to him. 2 Timothy 2.19 tells us that. The Lord knows who are his. The second paragraph of the confession, uh, chapter 26, says this. 
all people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints as long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living. All local congregations ought to be made up of these. Right? So the church is universal and invisible. It is also local and visible. You cannot really have a universal church unless there's a visible church also. The invisible is made visible. Okay? When we talk about the visible church, just look around you. Right? This is the church, the gathering of people that you and I can see with our physical eyes there. And that visible church consists of all professing believers who the confession calls visible saints. Notice the distinction. It really doesn't say visible church, but it refers to them as visible saints, right? Individual believers that make up a local congregation that we can see who profess uh, to affirm the truths of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, right? So individual visible saints make up the church. Now, so when we talk about the visible church, we're talking about those that actually make a profession of faith. Who can attend a worship service? Anyone. We welcome that. We want people, even if they don't even believe there's a God, we would welcome them through those doors. They can come into the gathering of the saints of God while the church is doing what the church is. Doing. So anybody can be part of that particular thing as well, but only those Right, that are born again, only those who've expressed faith in Jesus Christ can belong to the spiritual community and family of faith in the church. Only those who publicly profess their union with Christ through baptism, right? When baptism is that visible external sign of the inward reality of a profession of faith that has been made. Uh, paragraph uh, three of the confession has this phrase The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture. And error. What does that tell us? It tells us that the visible church made up of visible saints has a whole mix of people in it. Not only do you have the two layers of distinction that are part of it in terms of members and maybe leaders of the church, you have genuine believers, true converts, true believers, regenerated, truly born again. You also have false converts. You have a lot of people sitting in churches that profess with their mouths things that they don't live or truly believe in the way they live that out, right? You can even have wolves part of the visible church, right? New Testament has a lot of warnings about people who creep in to the visible church of Jesus Christ uh, to, to, to sow false teachings and division and strife and cause trouble and lead uh, God's people astray. So you have all that kind of thing. And you even have hypocrites. Can you believe the church... Even as hip, people, hypocrites, who would have thunk it? No, it's a mixture, right? And error. What does that mean? There's not a single visible church congregation, local church that gets it all right. You don't. And we should strive for truth and to get it right. But a lot of it, you know, you it's not going to be completely pure, is it? But even then, the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. It's the church of Jesus Christ, and he knows who belongs to him. In the church, you have some who are being sanctified and some people who are not being sanctified, right? So because you have that, a mixture of regenerate believers, false converts, 
Not everyone who's part of the visible church is also part of the invisible church. Okay? So we have to have that, right? That's just a theological understanding you have to have. Not everyone who says they're of Christ are of Christ, are part of the church. Okay? We'll talk more about that as well. Let's move on there. What authority does the church have? Because this is important to understand, and this is why this is foundational um, to understand this. How does Christ exercise his headship over the church? On any church's organizational chart, the top name should not be apostle so-and-so, pastor so-and-so. It should be Jesus Christ. He's the head of the church. Okay? We're all under Christ, under his headship. So how does he exercise his headship? Because he's not the one standing here before you telling you these things in person, is he? I'm not Jesus. Yeah. I don't know who might have been confused there, but no, no. He's not here. Right? Not that way. Not that way. So how, how does he do this? I don't get memos from him. I don't get emails. I don't get text messages. First, yeah, well, it is from his word. We understand his word. But first is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's how he exercises headship over the church. There's a number of passages you can see. I've referenced a few of them through John and in Acts. But the Spirit carries out the work of Christ. Without God's Spirit, there is no church. Without God's Spirit, there is no, no exercising of His supreme authority over His people and what they have to uniquely and distinctly do in this world and be in this world. That's what you have. Acts, Acts is all about showcasing the work of the Spirit through the people of God and through His church. That, that's what you have there. So first and foremost, it's through His Spirit. But secondly, it is through those whom Jesus appoints as his earthly representatives. And who is that initially? It's apostles, right? Yeah, it's apostles. They are the foundation of the church. That's, that indeed is what the scripture calls it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. All right, so yeah, we have the word now, which is the teaching, the apostolic teaching that comes to us. It's, it's continuing an ongoing uh, exercise of that leadership and, and headship that Jesus gave, delegated to his apostles. To this day, we are still doing that, talking that, right? Going back to our passage that we read there and looking at some of the things in context, the way that passage begins in Matthew chapter 16 is Jesus asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street, guys? Like, What do they think about me? Who do they think I am, right? Oh, some say you're the prophet. Blah, blah, blah. And then what, how does he turn it? He says, you. Who do you say that I am? That's where Peter pipes up. What does he say? You are the Christ, right? You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. That's who you are. That's who we believe you to be. Now, he may have been speaking for all of them, but he certainly was speaking for himself there. And Jesus affirms that Peter's answer is correct. Because the only way he could have said that and believe that is that it came directly from the Father. So you're correct, right? And then he continues, and what does he say to him? And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Jesus says he's going to build his church on this rock. What rock? Is it Peter? Well, if you're Roman Catholic, it's Peter, right? He's the, he's the first pope of the church. And everyone has succeeded, that has succeeded in the Roman Catholic Church as a direct descendant of Peter. It's not, they're not, I'm just saying. But is it Peter? Is the rock Peter's confession? Is that rock he's building the church on the other apostles? Well, as you can imagine, there was a lot of different <laughs> ideas and viewpoints concerning who was Jesus referring to? What exactly was Jesus referring to here? Peter, Peter's confession, other apostles. And I believe you don't need to separate any of those out. Um, you really can't separate Peter's confession from Peter because that's what Jesus affirms. Jesus affirming, you're right, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah, right? I am, right? And, and, and you can't separate it again from his affirmation on that. So that's connected to this statement that Jesus makes about building his church on the rock. I believe Jesus' church will be built by people, he's saying here, with the right profession, the right confession. That's what Peter did. The right confession was, you're the Christ, the Son of God, the right gospel. He turns to his disciples, and what does he say to them then? And he's not just talking to Peter here. When he says, I say to you, use plural, you is to his apostles, his disciples, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys? Are these literal keys? Did he hand him a key ring? So get you through the pearly gates. No, they're not literal keys. We talked about this in Revelation. We saw that symbol a few times in Revelation. What are keys symbolic of in Scripture? Authority. Keys are symbolic of authority. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus said, I have the keys of death and Hades. What does that mean? I have authority over death and Hades. Why? Because I overcame it. I conquered. I died and rose again. He has the keys. He has authority. So he's talking about authority here. Those keys that he says there are the authority to do exactly what Jesus has just finished doing with Peter. What did he just finish doing with Peter? Affirm the profession of his faith. What Jesus is doing and saying, here are the keys. I give you the keys. I give you the authority of the kingdom of heaven was that he was deputizing his apostles as agents of the kingdom of heaven, of God's kingdom of heaven. They are to be Christ's representative here on earth and affirm true confessions and confessors of the faith. Verse 19. Prove it to you. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth. Shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth. Shall be loosed in heaven. What on earth is that? Very misunderstood. Misused portion of scripture. The keys he's saying here. That I'm giving to you. Empower you to bind and loose things on earth. That will be bound or loosed in heaven. Now, binding and loosing are judicial terms. They're not about casting out demons, which is, in my background, Pentecostal, that's the only time I've heard them use. I bind you, Satan, I loose you, Satan. I just don't remember which one I need to do at which time. Am I binding or am I loosing? It's not what this is about. All right, 
yes, we can cast out spirits. That's not, what, that's not the point of this particular passage here. It's a term used by rabbis when they were applying the law to people and circumstances. Right? So in other words, if the law applied to a certain person in a certain circumstance, the law was said to be bound to them. They were bound to the law. It applied to them. If it did not apply to them in a specific circumstance or, or a specific person, it was said, they would said to be loosed, binding, loosing, the application of it or not. So what's happening here in this context? Okay, what is this authority of the keys that Jesus gives to his disciples? It means that they could stand before an individual who was making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They could evaluate their confession. They could also evaluate their life to see if it lined up with their confession. And then they can make a declaration. They can make a judgment. They can pronounce an official judgment on behalf of God's kingdom. Is that person's confession the right confession? Is that the true gospel? Well, how about their life? Does their life bear the fruit in keeping with the confession that they're making? Is this a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? Is this a genuine follower of Jesus Christ here? The authority he gave them was to determine who on earth was part of God's kingdom. That's why he says, the judgment and the verdict you render here on earth, it's as if it is in heaven. Okay? When the call is made. We'll look at that in a little more detail in a second. Jesus establishes the church's ability to grow and be built up through the power of the keys of this particular authority, giving the church the authority to assess and affirm a person's words and deeds to see if they match up with a proper confession of faith in Jesus Christ and render judgment concerning that membership in Christ's church. Let me show you now those keys in action. Okay? You want to see that? Now, you know this other passage, too. Not going to be a surprise to you, but again, a misunderstood and misapplied passage. The only other time the word that Jesus uses the word church or the word church is found in the Gospels is just flip over two chapters to the 18th chapter of Matthew. Only two times the word church is used. The only two times this concept of binding and loosing in relation to this is used here. Okay? So Matthew 18 is going to show us how these keys are applied put into action to render judgment regarding someone's words and actions, their confession, and their life. Okay? This passage directs us on how to deal with a person who sins against us. Right? You know this passage. A person sins against you, right? If a brother sins against you, what do you do, right? So that's the picture. Someone in church, again, this never happens. It certainly has never happened here. Someone sins against you, right? In the church of all places. What do you do, right? They sin against you. That sin is not in keeping with their confession. So what is Jesus? Jesus gives them a four-step plan, if you will, of direct confrontation with this, this individual with a sole goal and purpose to win your brother back, to bring them to repentance, to restore them and you to fellowship with them, okay? That's the goal there. So Jesus says, all right, first thing you do is what? Gossip to someone else about it. No, no, no. Post on Facebook some passive-aggressive thing, you know, about somebody did to you. Ask someone to pray. Hey, I'm going through something with another brother. I can't say their name right now. 
but the Lord knows. And you start telling him, no. What does he say? What are you supposed to do? You go, go directly, right? And then what? If he repents, you've won your brother. If he repents, relationship restored. If he repents, his confession is valid. It's credible. That's it. What else needs to be done? Nothing else, right? That's, that's the goal. Would that, it would always end with step one, right? But it, it doesn't, right? Second step is, hey, they, they're not repentant. What do you do? You get two or three mature believers, right, that you bring along as witnesses. Why are two or three believers needed? Well, that is the biblical pattern for establishing a testimony, right? So you bring two or three. Notice I said mature believers, there's some people you could bring along in the process that are not very helpful, you know, in it. So you'd want a mature, you know, brother or sister in Christ. You know, you bring along. Again, what's the goal? Bring them to repentance, you know, restoration. That's the goal, to win, to win that person back. Third step is, again, they, they don't repent. So it's, you see it escalating here. Notice where it, it doesn't start, you know, with, you know, ostracizing a church member and talking about them to the point and making their life miserable so they leave the church. We've seen that, right? That's not biblical. It's not godly. It's sinful. There's, there's a process here. Third step now is, whoa, this, this person is remaining uh, impenitent and they have to be brought before who? The? The gathering of the church. Like this. Like there's a format where a person who is, is, is not repentant, they may not be present, but now, because of what's happening in the fellowship, it's got to be brought to the assembly of believers. For what purpose? Yes, to continue to call the person to repentance, but if it doesn't happen and all three steps are exhausted, what's the next step? Put them out. A, a, a judgment is made. It's rendered. To what end? To invalidate their confession. Their confession of faith is not valid. Their life is inconsistent with the gospel they're professing. It doesn't jive. So what are they instructed to do? Be removed from the covenant community. They're to be put out and Jesus said they're to be treated like tax collectors and pagans and sinners. Like a sinner. Like people outside of the church. There's some churches who have done this well. We've labored to do things like this over our history. It doesn't always go as planned. But this is, this is the pattern for dealing with those things in the church. Why? Because it, to the church has been given these keys. That's why. They're to be put out. We call that church discipline. We can call that excommunication, right? They're excommunicated from the fellowship. Certainly they would be barred from participation in the Lord's table, they can't participate. They might still show up, but they're to be treated. They no longer have the privileges of being part of the covenant community. Those are the keys of the authority Jesus Christ has given to his church. And it's in the context of a local church. Because you're not doing this with someone who's part of a church in overseas, right? You're doing this with the people that you're gathering with. The presumption here is that we're known. We're known. In order for a church to affirm someone's confession and life, they've got to be part of it. 
Okay, there's the assumption here of a local church, an understanding of who is part of the community of believers based on their confession and their life. And the local church has been granted that authority to announce this official judgment on heaven's behalf. One last example of that in case you're still wondering. Look at Paul's letter again to the church at Corinth. Talk about a jacked up church. You have one there, okay? He was writing to them and he's upset because they have not followed Matthew 18. They were not using the power of the keys, the authority Christ had given them to deal with an issue of sexual immorality in their church. They had an immoral believer hooking up with his stepmother. That's pretty Jerry Springer-like or whoever the equivalent Jerry Springer is of today. Okay? That's some serious stuff going on in the church. And, and, and he's, he blasts them. He, puts, he blasts them saying, you, you're arrogant about the situation. You're not dealing with it. Look at this 1 Corinthians 5, these first five verses. We'll go through quickly. Paul writes, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagan pagans. Right? What's he saying there? There's someone in your church who is naming the name of Christ, but he's acting worse than, right? His, his lifestyle is not matching up with his mouth style. He's acting even worse than pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Look, for though I am absent in body, he says, I am present in spirit. And as if present, look at this. He's already used and exercised the power of the keys. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. <clears throat> now look at four. Here's the, the issue. You guys need to exercise now the power of those keys. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's Paul saying here? I've used the power of the keys. What are you waiting for? You should, you need to now. Next time you're gathered, next time the church is assembled, exercise the authority given to you, render judgment, cast him out of the church, hand him over to be saved. Maybe if he's buffeted for a while, he will repent and turn to the Lord. That's the authority given to the local church. It's kind of frightening, isn't it? Now, that won't fly in the modern church context, will it? Right? The consumer-driven, attractional church where, you know, church members are customers. That's what they want. The customer's king. The customer's always right. Got to give them what they want so they can keep coming back. We don't want to offend them. We don't want to get them upset. We're not going to call out sin. We're not going to deal with certain of those things. We're going to just trust that the Lord works on their heart, you know. You don't dare want to bring something like this up because they'll leave. They won't even tell you. They'll just put a bad review on your Facebook page. Can't, you know, that, that's, that's what it's like here. Today's churches are more like cruise ships than anything else. You've got a whole staff that's to cater to the whims of the constituents, the customers of the church. You know, making them happy, make, you know, do, having, providing everything for them, you know. And what happens? If you don't like it, you just go to another cruise ship. I love cruise ship. We love to go on cruises. 
I like getting taken care of. I like not having to worry about anything. But that's not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is not a cruise ship with a cruise director and a captain and a friendly staff of people. It isn't the love boat, okay? (laughs) The ability Jesus gives his church to remove someone from the fellowship presupposes an authority granted to the church from the very moment someone shows up for the first time. The church is to assess a person's confession and life if they are claiming to profess Christ. Again, that means you're present. Like the only way we would know your profession is true and credible is if you're part of what we do. If over time we can observe, man, the fruit of your life is consistent with your profession of the gospel, of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's real. It's evident. It's there. We can't tell that the first time. We can't tell that if you only show up every four or five months. If your pattern of gathering with us is inconsistent. See, because we don't see the church this way and we don't understand what the church is and the authority that God has granted the church, we treat the church like it's any other membership thing that we do that we opt in and out of and can show up when we want to, when we don't want to. I'm not trying to guilt anyone here in this room about that. I just want you to see this in God's word. Because then you have to wrestle with not, not what I say, but, but with the, what the word of God teaches concerning this. And brothers and sisters, it's not just about the Sunday gathering, right? It's entering into the life. Like As a minimum, it's the Sunday gathering, but largely, it's entering into the life of the common fellowship of the saints of God here. Through all that we do. Through interactions with one another. How we encourage one another and do all the one another's. You cannot one another one another without being with one another. You just can't do it. Try to one another yourself. That's not smart. <laughs> we need one another. But we have to be with one another in order to obey what we've been instructed to do concerning this. When the church exercises its Christ-given authority to affirm people's confession, when it baptizes them, grants them access to the Lord's table, the church is in essence saying, these individuals are official, card-carrying members of the church of Jesus Christ with all of its rights and privileges. That's what we do. We're basically licensing you to say, This is a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. That's the power of those keys. Will the church always get that right? Nah. No, we won't always get it right. Will the church make mistakes in exercising their power of the keys? Yes. The church will make those mistakes. Does the judgment we render here on earth change someone's eternal status in heaven? No, that's not the power in view here, okay? We don't determine, you're not saved at all, ever. You know, No, don't misunderstand that either. That's, that's not what's going on here. All right? This, again, we would design this a different way, but in the wisdom of God, he uses uh, imperfect people like us, right, in this imperfect gathering of, of what we do, uh, but in obedience to our perfect Savior and the perfect kingdom of heaven. We have a part in this. Because the church gets it wrong sometimes, because the church screws this up in many ways, does not invalidate one bit 
the authority given to the church here on earth. It doesn't. This is foundational to even begin to understand what it means to be part of a local church and why formalizing membership is important. We need to know. We need to know who's part of it. That's all. That's all. Some churches will keep your name long after you're gone because it's really nice to have you on their rolls. There's some Baptist churches I know of with 30 people in attendance that have like 2,000 names or 3,000 names on their membership rolls. Like, what's all that about, you know? You're hoping they come back. (laughs) If you offer the right program, they might. Fog machines, those will get them in the door. I'm not knocking. You know I love that stuff. (laughs) It's not the way it's supposed to work, you know? And again, notice, notice I've not said yet it's the pastor's job to do this. It's the church's job. We all have a part in that. The mess we have in the world today and in the church today, rather, is largely because of our flawed ecclesiology. Importing worldly concepts into the church because we want to appeal to the culture, reach the unchurched, And we strip the church of any authority to call people to actually live up to the confession of faith that they are making. Not here. Not here. We endeavor to please the Lord, to live for him. He's the head of the church. He's the head of this church. It's not me. It's Jesus. And I want us to understand this is an authority granted to the church. How does that change our interaction when we know we are responsible for one another's membership in the kingdom of God. Of affirming the validity of our profession of faith. And when someone's life is not living up to that, that it's our responsibility to call that brother and sister to repentance and to live up to their confession. That's a different animal, isn't it? It's a different beast altogether. It's not all the church does, but it's an important one. Now, it's possible you've been part of a church uh, or many different churches over a long period of time, and you've never given serious consideration to the church's authority over your spiritual life and formation and its authority to affirm the confession of your faith. You might not have thought you don't see the church that way. You just thought, hey, that's something I just do because I like the songs or... You know, the preacher teaches okay, and, you know, there's some people there I like. But our responsibility is is over your spiritual formation. It's over your spiritual life. That's the authority. That's, That's the responsibility God has given to his church. So we need you present. We need you part of it. We need you invested in it and committed to the gathering of God's people. It's possible maybe you haven't even considered the importance of the local church and your role in it as vital to affirming who belongs and who doesn't. So it's not just the church's responsibility to you, but your responsibility also now to your other brothers and sisters who are part of the gathering and your role in helping to affirm that. Again, you might have been hurt in previous churches and wounded and uh, makes you hesitant about what... I don't know if I want to give myself again to that. I was hurt deeply. We all were. A lot of us have been. 
some more than others. And I pray that the Lord again heals you, but that you would walk in obedience to the Lord in this area and commit yourself to your brothers and sisters in Christ in deep fellowship, deep communion, to this gathering as a minimum, but beyond this of, of being in the lives. We call it life on life discipleship, right? Where, where, you know, we're rubbing, our lives are rubbing together all the time. Okay, not infrequently, but frequently. It's Jesus' church. He's the head of the church. You and I will give account to him regarding our participation in the life of the church, the gathering of God's people. And this understanding, I, I, this, this is what I hope. I don't really hope for a whole lot sometimes, you know. I trust God and say, Lord, your word's going to go out and do what your word's supposed to do. My job isn't to be, you know, the ultimate persuader here. But what a motivation to get out of bed early on Sunday mornings, get your kids, get your family ready, and get to the gathering of the people of God because of what's going to happen there. And because of what the church is and what the church does when they're gathered. Proper understanding of the church will move you to give yourself sacrificially to others, to involve yourself deeply, to share in the common life with the saints of God. Isn't it awesome? Jesus is building his church. But he's using us towards that end as well. We get to co-labor with him in that. We all have a responsibility and a part in that as well. And I pray that you're moved that way to see that the gathering of God's people is not something you opt in and out of on your own whim. You're seeing you're united to each one here because of your union in Christ. It's what Jesus prayed, right? We call it his highest priestly prayer. He prayed that they would be one, that his church, his people would be one as he and the Father are one. The greatest way we express our oneness is in this gathering and in the participation of the meal we are about to receive in this moment. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to invite you to stand. And then we're going to move to receive communion.